Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday december 17th 2010 this week episode 190 comes to you from studio c in beautiful mckees rocks pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the z-man cliff zlotnick good afternoon joe good day cliff and at the controls our engineer austin stone cold novak All right, today we're going to have the IAQ radio trivia question and interview with attorney Doug Farquhar of the National Conference of State Legislatures. Uh, He's not on the line here yet, but we're hoping he'll join us any moment. And then we'll do our halftime, and then, of course, we'll do the roundup at the end of the show. We've been updating and adding a blog. You can check out Cliff's blog at iaqradio.com. First, before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, there's a variety of ways you can join us here on the show. You can stream live by following the link on the invitations we send out or the link on the iaqradio.com webpage. And, of course, a lot of people download the shows later from either iTunes or you can stream it from our homepage. And, of course, you can always go to TalkShoe.com and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Don't forget, you can also get ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC continuing education credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. To Andy Krozowski, Comcast Metal Products in Mars, PA, for being the first person to answer last week's trivia question by identifying plum bum as the Latin word from which plumber is derived. The IAQ Radio trivia question for Friday, December 10th, 2000, I'm sorry, December 17th, 2010, has been sponsored by Cochrane and Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. Which U.S. state's legislature is unique, 
having a single chamber or unicameral legislative body. All right, let's go back. We're going to uh, do our introduction. We may have a little uh, time zone uh, mix up here with Mr. Farquhar, but today's guest is Doug Farquhar, an attorney with over 20 years' experience working with policymakers on environmental health issues, primarily working with state legislatures. He has testified 45 times before legislative committees in 30 states, in addition to consulting with state agency staff in every state on enlightening state policymakers. He has written books and articles on environmental health policy and has recently been asked to become a columnist for the National Environmental Health Journal. For the past 17 years, Mr. Farquhar has directed the Environmental Health Program at the National Conference of State Legislatures. This program performs legislative analysis and outreach on state and federal environmental health and trade laws. They focus on delegation and authorization of federal and state laws and provide legal and technical assistance to state legislatures legislators and agency staff on state, federal, and international environmental, environmental health, and trade policies. He also provides testimony before state legislative committees and task forces, reviews and comments on legislation and regulations, drafts memos, articles, and books on state environmental health policies, and represents state interests before federal and international bodies. Prior to starting with NCSL, he worked in the Texas House of Representatives for the Natural Resources and Appropriations Committee and for Congressman Schaefer on Capitol Hill in Washington. He received his law degree from the University of Denver and undergraduate from the University of Texas in Austin and is an adjunct professor in their Graduate School of Environmental Policy and Management at the Sturm College of Law. We are hoping to hear from him any minute, and uh, before we do, I think uh, the Z-Man and I are going to just uh, kind of review what's going on with uh, regulations in general with respect to the indoor air quality industry. I also wanted to kind of overview what the environmental health group at the National Conference of State Legislatures does. If you go to their website, you'll find that they are concerned with indoor air quality, asbestos, lead hazards, asthma, and radon. In addition, they focus on children's environmental health issues, and the latter issue is of special concern because of a growing body of evidence, including rising developmental disability and asthma rates that indicate children are more sensitive than adults to environmental contaminants. The EPA is revising pesticide residue limits to make sure they provide a margin of safety for children as well as adults. States may be required to update environmental standards to comply with federal regulations. Currently, most state and federal regulations are based on adults. Only within the past few years have state legislation been passed in California and Maryland, for example, to take children's special vulnerabilities into account. Legislation addressing environmental health issues can be tracked on the National Conference of State Legislators Environmental Health Legislation Database. What we uh, were interested in discussing here today were a couple things in particular. We have three areas of concern that we cover on IAQ Radio, as most of our listeners are aware. We've got indoor air quality issues. We've got disaster restoration issues. And, of course, we also cover building science issues. So we're uh, working now to get... Uh, Mr. Farquhar on the line. As soon as we get him on, we'll start the interview. But um, while we're leading up to that, I thought maybe I'd talk a little bit about some of the experience I've been having with state regulations with respect to the mold issue. This is something that um, is on the minds of a lot of people in our industry. There are a lot of questions, concerns, and actually opportunities for people to have some input into what's going on with respect to legislation in their states. We, it, this all started with uh, Texas back, I'm going to say five years ago now, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me here, but Texas Department of Health developed some mold regulations which, which were really pretty comprehensive regulations. They require training, they require taking a, an exam, they require having state, I, I believe they call it licensing for their program, and they have different categories of licensing. They've got 
of course, your contractors, uh, consultants, and laboratories. So uh, the state of Texas came out early on with regulations, and that makes sense, Cliff, because obviously, you know, they were ground zero for the mold is gold rush in the early days after the Ballard case. And um, there was a lot of questions about who could and who couldn't do appropriate mold remediation. And uh, since then, their regulations have been in effect. We've had people tell us that, you know, it's going well for some. For others, they were quite disappointed that there were regulations that required licensing on mold. And I think one of the biggest disappointments for a lot of people has been that it was that we needed to have licensing specific to mold and i'm um, just curious cliff what you know I, we don't see much from texas we don't talk to too many people from texas anymore what are your thoughts on on the approach they took which is basically you've got to have a texas approved course a texas exam a texas license a texas address and that's the way you do mold remediation and or assessment in texas I think it's overkill, Joe. You know, I'm really a capitalist. I believe in free enterprise. Uh, I, I also would rather have seen a situation where the industry was self-regulated, you know, by itself. And, uh, you know, I think one example that, that we can use is the pest control industry. There's a lot of self-regulation. You know, I think the government overreacted. Uh, you know, with banning DDT and forming the EPA, and I think they made some bad decisions. But if you look at the pest control industry today with integrated pest management, you know, the uh, insecticide use has, has been reduced. Uh, I think there have been less incidents of, uh, you know, human exposure and, and, and things like that, you know, than have occurred in the past. And uh, it, it's a good example that self-regulation will work. You know, one of the things that I could never understand about, you know, our industry in general, and it probably comes, and you would know better than I would, it probably comes from the asbestos industry, but, you know, where does it say that I can't be the consultant and contractor, uh, you know, on, on the same project? You know, if you have a high ethical standard, I mean, the problem is either there or it's not. Uh, if it's there, then there are uh, a number of different fixes you know, for that particular problem. And I think one of the challenges uh, that we have uh, is in terms of not being able to supervise, you know, your own product. Well, but now let's go back to the pesticide uh, example you gave there. I, I thought it was required to be licensed to be a pesticide applicator. There is government, there is a requirement for uh, government licensing. However, the industry does a lot of self-regulation. They do a lot of self-training. Uh, you know, they're pretty active in terms of public outreach, recommendations, and, and so on and so forth. So I just would have rather seen a situation where there wasn't any regulation. I think, I think the industry and the evolution of industry, what's going to happen is the good companies are going to survive. The good contractors, the honest people are going to survive. And I don't know that the fact that we have a licensing situation doesn't ensure that the contractor is going to be good or that he's going to be competent or he's going to be you know, fair to the consumer. Uh, you know, the fact is he just has a license that he can go around and show people. I guess I, I understand where you're coming from, and I, I don't necessarily come down on one side or the other. I deal with people on a you know monthly basis, if not daily, that are trying to come into compliance with these and it, it seems to me the ones that are in a good position to become licensed are happy about licensing they think that it will help get rid of some of the fly-by-night companies out there that really don't have the ability for one thing to to get the insurance that's required to become licensed or to have the certifications that are oftentimes required to be licensed and they don't have the um the, the training and or the experience maybe that's required to be licensed so how do you self-regulate that? It seems to me we haven't done a good job of that as an industry to start with, and maybe that's why these state legislatures are now coming out with regulations. Well, let's go back to lead, Joe, and, and you know, kind of look at, I think what happened was, uh, you know, we had the problem with asbestos and based upon the way the uh, marketplace evolved around asbestos, they ended up using that approach to lead. And I think what happened was we had an over, 
I would say, an overaggressive reaction uh, in dealing with lead. And now look what's happened, Joe, you know, the, with the remodeling regulations and so on and so forth. You don't necessarily need a license to do it. You just need to go through this training program in order to do it. And I think it's a lot easier to get through that than it was to go through the, um, you know, the lead removal training and licensing that was required, but yet they're doing the same thing. And, you know, I don't understand why you would need a greater level of training to remove lead in a public building than you would to remove it in a residence. Well, the lead's a different, a little different issue. Let me let me kind of clarify for listeners, um, and I, and this goes back to really my my area of expertise. The, it really the licensing issue started with asbestos, and that was back in the late '80s, 1987. A, a law came out, the Asbestos Hazard Emergency Response Act, that set up a framework nationwide for states if they wanted to to either follow the federal EPA regulations for licensing or to develop their own state program that had to be as stringent or more stringent than the federal program. And that, I was a training program manager for a company that offered that training nationwide. And, and it really became difficult when different states started developing their own regulations that were as stringent as or more stringent than the federal regulation. So I can understand both sides of the issue. I can understand where people would want a federal regulation, like with the lead renovation, repair, and painting rule. That is federal. Uh, there are also states that can't adopt it, but it gives you a baseline. You know what you have to do to do that type of work on any project throughout the United States. Where the problems came in with both lead and asbestos is when states started developing their own requirements, and then they were more stringent than the federal guidelines, and it really caused problems for people who were trying to do work in more than one area. Like the company I worked for was a big company, 170 offices nationwide. And we had to try and keep track of state regulations in, at the time, there were about 40 states that regulated um, these activities. And... They probably all still regulate them, but it was you had to have a, a license in each state. When I had my old company, we paid $25,000 a year just to teach asbestos and lead training courses in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and West Virginia. It became a nightmare. It really did. And that was with a federal overview so like a framework that each state followed so you at least had some kind of framework for how this was to be done then every state did their own thing and it made it really tough in fact psi the company i worked for got out of the training business altogether they decided it was just too much of a headache we had too many problems with people who were uh, you know not getting the approval from a state doing training in a state getting fined for doing a training in a state etc etc it became a nightmare now, with this mold thing, personally, I don't have a major problem with regulating or licensing to some degree people, but the way it's happening is a nightmare on a state-by-state -state basis with no overarching guideline or framework from which to work. Like in Texas, you've got the DOH in charge of it. Everything's DOH. Then you've got... Uh, Louisiana, slightly different approach. Florida, different approach. Now we've got Virginia looking at a different approach. New York State has said, well, we kind of agree with Cliff Zlotnick. Let's just let them have some kind of uh, industry certification, and um, that would be fine. Or let's just refer our consumers to people with industry certifications. They're kind of going on that route. Maryland's another mess where you've got a law that's been passed but wasn't funded, and now people are going, well, do I have to have a license or not? Can I even get a license? No, at this point is my understanding. You can't, even though there's a law that says you're supposed to have one. We, we've got this mishmash of laws coming into effect that's driving people crazy. I know we've got a couple text comments up here, and let me, let me take a quick look at those. Um, any studies or evaluations of mold remediation quality before state regs and licensing required and after? Has it helped? Great question. Um, to the best of my knowledge, no. That we, I don't believe there are any studies or evaluations 
before and after. And I think, in fact, one of the problems, and I, I wrote about this in Indoor Environment Connections for the year-end paper, was Texas actually abandoned their law for a while after one of the hurricanes came through. I can't remember which one. And there was so much work for mold remediation, they allowed anybody to come in and do mold remediation because there weren't enough licensed people to do the work. Now what do you got? You've got people coming in doing the work. You've got people that jump through all the hoops to be licensed, yet when there's a big event where they would you know, kind of reap some of the benefits of going through those hoops, the state allowed anybody to come in and do it. So it's, it's quite a mess. And, uh, you know, there's another text. EPA and state lead abatement often occur while a child is poisoned or where a child is poisoned. The RRP cannot do abatement. That's no poison kids. That's a good point. There's a, there's a big difference between the lead renovation, repair, and painting rule and actually doing lead abatement. When you're doing renovation, uh, you're not really supposed to call that lead abatement. You're not doing lead abatement. What you're doing is a renovation project that may disturb lead or will disturb lead in some cases. And the concern has been that if that's not done properly, then you um, might poison a child, okay? Uh, so, you know, th this is a tough question, and it's been tough for people within the renovation industry. The people who get the training, get the state, actually EPA, you have to send in, I think it's $300 to EPA, get your uh, license, I don't know if they call it a license or a, a registration or whatever they call it, to be a lead renovator so that when you are doing renovation, you disturb something, you have the appropriate training where you won't poison a, a kid. And a lot of the problem has been that renovation contractors insist, and, and I think they have a great point, that the ones who are doing it and doing it right get penalized because they go through the process that costs more money to do the job the right way where someone else comes in and underbids them. So you have the unintended consequences sometimes of these regulations. Well, you know, when you go back to the regulations again, I think going back to asbestos, you know, we know it's been a problem in shipyards. We know mesothelioma and uh, you know, there are other cancer-related uh, diseases that are known to be directly related to exposure from asbestos. We know the same thing with lead. We know that it's affected children. It affects their mental capacity and their development and so on and so forth. And, I mean, those are toxic, hazardous materials. You know, going back to the mold thing, you know, and I think Dieter said on one of the earlier shows, you know, this whole mold business is something that attorneys made up. And I think what happens is just that, yeah, you know, we know that damp, living in a damp environment isn't good and, and so on and so forth. But I mean, it, with all the digging and all the studies and all the money and all the litigation, you know, there's really nothing solid that we can refer to. Well, we're going to, let's bring Dr. Wow on the line here. Uh, Dieter, do we have you on the line? Yeah, good uh, day. How are you guys doing good, out there? It good, sounds good. Good, good. I guess we have a slight little technical problem there, but that's no big deal. Yeah, you'll have that, Dieter. We can just chat. It's the last show of the year, and right. uh, we'll wrap things up. Uh, Cliff, you and I can talk for the next five hours. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, first of all, uh, congratulations again to Andy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Must be the runaway champion by now. I don't know. Him and John Lapater have a neck and neck yeah, race. Yeah, I turned him on to the show. Right. <laughs> but he told me that if if he had not answered that question first, that Dieter would never have forgiven him. Oh, because yeah. I guess you were out there doing some lead sampling recently. At, no, at 6.30 on Monday morning. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. In fact, uh, in fact uh, I'm doing lead sampling over there. Right. That quarterly, quarterly, my, my quarterly appearance. Gotcha. All right, no. but, yeah, I mean, with those regulations, this is interesting, uh, what Joe said earlier. Uh, when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, I was teaching asbestos courses, and 
I had a lot of fun doing it and developing it and, and, and having yeah, interaction with the students. Then all of a sudden, uh, all this licensing stuff came in, and I finally threw in the towel. I said, I'm not a politician. I don't want to work with this. I'm a teacher over here. And if I have to do that and that and that, and I can't do that and I can't do that, I gave up on it. And, and it cost me a ton of money, too, in the first year when I did it. And as Joe was saying, I don't know how many thousands of dollars I used. And I finally said, no, um, I, I throw in the towel. And the other amazing thing is my overhead was virtually zero. Yeah, I had my office. I had the university of the, the auditorium. Uh, I bought a couple of loudspeakers and microphones and amplifiers and so on. And we had a lot of people in there. Yeah, I didn't pay. My secretary was running the finances for me, and uh, she did the registration. So I didn't pay for anything, really. And it became too much of a problem for me to run through these programs. So um, I don't know. I think, I think we need, whether we like it or not, we need some regulations. I mean, if we were to say in the United States, we know you're all nice guys, or most of them are nice guys, and we know you all want to pay the taxes, and we don't have a tax code, just send in the money you think you owe every yeah, <laughs> January 1st, I don't think it's going to work. And uh, I have a very fast car, and if I would know that I couldn't possibly get a ticket when I drive from here to Erie, I probably would drive sometimes, <laughs> not I mean, not irresponsibly, but I just, yeah, I paid for 350 horsepowers. I want to use them. <laughs> right, right, Dieter. So, but I think we need some regulations, but I think it can be done internally. As, 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 as Cliff and Joe uh, knows, you know, I work for a big, big industry. It's called, a little outfit called Bayer Chemical Corporation. Right. And I don't think whether we did the best job in the world, but we regulated ourselves, too, by saying, said, hey, if we don't take care, what is that, product stewardship, I think it's called. Right. But if we know, we know what it is, we know how to take care of it, and it's our responsibility to tell our clients on how to use this material safely. In fact, that's how I got a job. So, yeah, and, um, well, was I licensed? Uh, was bear licensed were all our other clients licensed well i worked to a lot of pe uh, with a lot of people who were certified industrial hygienists and safety professionals and lawyers and all of that and um, we didn't really have a licensing uh, pro process as such so yeah that was okay you know i i i i liked it did we do a perfect job of course not you know, you know, going back, we just have this faith, I think, in the United States, at least a, a certain percentage of the population thinks that government is the answer. And government doesn't know more about mold remediation than industry. Government has never done, I mean, if you look at Congress and, you know, we look at the Senate, you know, you look at the House of Representatives. I mean, these people don't know anything about our business, yet they're making the laws and they're making the regulations to regulate it. So there's a disconnect. You know, I think what we need is self-regulation, and I, I think that it'll work better. You know, certainly you need some laws, and certainly, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, we have an, an absolutely lawless uh, society. However, things do have a tendency to... You know, the clock will reset itself, you know, when, you know, when there's a problem. I, I just think that the more government gets involved, the more we rely on government to resolve our problems, the more complicated things get. And I think a lot of times with the government, the, the, the end of the, once the legislation comes out, it has the opposite effect of what was originally intended. Yeah, but if you look at, Let's take asbestos, uh, Dr. Wow. You worked a lot around asbestos. And the whole reason the asbestos regulations came about was the fact that the manufacturers of the product knew it was a hazard, lied about and hid the hazard, intentionally used employees and others as guinea pigs 
and allowed them to develop these asbestos-related diseases over the years with because there was no regulation of the issue. Do you, is that is that an incorrect statement or is that pretty- no no I, I I think it is a correct statement and like I said I mean, if if we don't yeah, uh, is it good and I don't want to argue that point is it good to have a drinking in an alcoholic beverage drinking age I think it's good I don't think you ought to get your five-year-old kid drunk or something like that <laughs> and um, I think we need some regulations, and particularly in this country, we have, and I just talked when I was uh, on vacation to a couple of people from Europe, where somebody told us that you Americans are crazy with all these suits that are going on. They are not possible in Germany or in England or in France, because if you lose in a, in a, in a, in a, in a stupid case that you bring against somebody, you pay. That is the beauty of it. So you got to think about it before you sue somebody. But um, so that is a safeguard over here where, you know, you literally need a lawyer to um, uh, uh, defend yourself because uh, you're wide open to lawsuits. And uh, so there is there is and, and. if, if nothing else, industry understands the bottom line. That's yeah, that is the They don't. Nobody wants to lose a couple of million or billion dollars um, because of an oversight or so. So I think there is some regulation. Again, can we do better? Certainly, certainly. Uh, I do a couple of things that I shouldn't do. I don't want to tell you what, <laughs> but. Um, uh, and, and I get away with it, and it's not fraudulent or any of that. Uh, uh, yeah, or I, sometimes when I use the ladder, I don't use it the way OSHA wants me to use it. So, but like I said, I think we have that safeguard there. If you really uh, screw up, you're going to get caught. Well, a Cliff said that uh, before also. I said, hey, look, if you screw up, and you are liable for a couple of million dollars. Now you 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 think about it a little bit more carefully than you know, if if there were no regulations. Uh, there's a text here, Dieter. Let me ask you this. Um, all right, first sure. is it's uh, is this a nature versus nurture type discussion essentially? Does government serve business or does business serve uh, or vis a vis? Does business serve government? At one time, the OSHA PEL was 20 fibers per cc for asbestos for a reason. Can you talk to us a little bit about whether that was an appropriate or an adequate level of protection? Well, uh, Joe, you know I'm in the middle of that. And as a matter of fact, this afternoon I will be writing a report on asbestos fibers. Uh, it, um, was it? Yes, I... Was it known, was it known, in fact, over a hundred years ago by now, uh, that asbestos may not be good for you? Yes, we knew that. The Romans knew that lead wasn't good for you. Uh, They obviously didn't know how to measure it, but they knew that contact with it was not a good idea. In fact, there are theories that the fall of the Roman Empire was due to the lead pipes that they were using for transporting their water. Um, so, uh, here, here comes the problem. When I went to school for my doctorate at the Graduate School of Public Health, University of Pittsburgh, that was basically 1968 to 1972, we didn't even really have a method to look at asbestos fibers in air. It did not exist. Now, I had my own method, and I said that before, which, of course, was the best in the world. Uh, therefore, NIO started to have their own method. <laughs> but I worked with a couple of guys over there. But we had an indicator of dustiness. So nobody really knew what was good, bad, or indifferent with asbestos fibers in air and, therefore, asbestos fibers in your lungs. We didn't know about the size distribution of fibers. 
we started to look at them under the microscope. And even at that time, uh, you know that later on when the electron microscopy came in, there were not a lot of electron microscopes there. A lot of those microscopes in use today were paid for by, quote, asbestos. Uh, we had one at the University of Pittsburgh, and I worked on one of them. So that was developed. But this was, now we are in the 70s. OSHA just got rolling. They had a handful of people. Uh, were they all qualified? I don't know. But they hired just about any warm body that had something to do with environmental and occupational health. And they didn't really know uh, uh, how to handle that. There were no really OSHA, no, no OSHA regulations. And uh, in fact, their budget was so low that you couldn't really hire somebody who was, quote, good, because you didn't have the money for his uh, salary. So they hired, quote, technicians. I have nothing against technicians, but yeah, there were uh, uh, problems with funding the, the whole system. So then we started using um, methodologies with which we could uh, quantitatively uh, count fibers and knew what we were doing. So NIOSH got into it, I got into it, a lot of other guys from Europe, from England, uh, they were all uh, there and we had discussions and were meetings and I said, hey, how do we do this? Um, then yeah, I, <laughs> Joe knows exactly what I'm talking about. I had a microscope that cost $35,000, a beautiful machine. And uh, uh, the, the question, and I had a resolution, and that is the key, not magnification, the resolution. I could see fibers that another microscope couldn't even think of seeing. And that has something to do with resolution, not empty magnification. <clears throat> I said, well, Dieter, you have this wonderful machine, but if we put that in the legislation, people are going to scream and say, hey, that's too expensive, we don't want it. And I said, well, then we go a little bit lower magnification and the lower quality. That's finally what we did. Uh, can we do better than we are doing it right now? Yes, we can. And that there is a parallel to it. What is happening with counting and looking at mold um, spores? I know a laboratory where they look at mold spores with 1,000 magnification. They have a, a microscope very similar to the one that I have, and that is an oil immersion, and it has very good resolution. There are other laboratories. They work with a high dry a 63 that came that would come out to. A, uh, 630 magnification. By the way, the magnification we are using using for OSHA asbestos fibers. So they use that one. I understand that. I have the, uh, uh, the microscope set up. I don't care whether I look at fibers or at mold spores. Who is right here? I don't know who is right. Is 100 magnification better than 600 in round numbers? Uh, yeah, perhaps. Uh, now comes the next question. Does oil immersion do anything to the size or the structure of a mold uh, spore? I don't know. I haven't studied that. I know it doesn't do anything to an asbestos fiber. So, yeah, so we, we, we are learning. So going back to the asbestos, heck, we didn't really know what was going on other than that it is bad. That's what we knew. Dieter, would you agree or disagree with the statement that what happened in the United States was an overreaction to asbestos. And we took a material which had some benefits and could be used in inexpensive and beneficial ways. And based on friable asbestos, uh, you know, we ended up banning the substance. We don't use it anymore. And what happens is the materials that replace it cost more and art and, and do not perform as well. Uh, no question about it. And uh, yeah, nobody in his right mind, right or wrong, would touch asbestos today because of the liability. Right. And there are other countries where asbestos is a, a, a beautiful substance which saves the life. And of course, we have learned how to control fiber exposure and all of that. 
just as there are places in this world uh, where DDT is being used, right. and uh, it's doing, it saves millions of lives. More than uh, penicillin? To, uh, uh, control mosquitoes. Right. More than penicillin. And um, so, yeah, you have to, you have to sit there. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm going to spray my house with a pesticide because I want to kill the Anopheles uh, mos uh, mosquito, which transmits uh, the sleeping disease, um, yeah, because I don't need it over here. Well, I was just down in Mexico. In fact, I will uh, write a letter to the management of the hotel in which I was staying. There, were, yeah, there are all the people, they are the, they are the tourists. The tourists don't want to be bothered by mosquitoes. What do we do? There is a truck, and at first I said I couldn't believe it, and Cliff knows the noise of that cannon that oh, yeah. sprays that stuff. Right, he yeah, has yeah. one uh, uh, in, 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 uh, in his uh, uh, training uh, room over there. And there is that guy, and I looked out of my window, and I said, who, who is burning something over there? Well, that was the cloud in which the applicator uh, was driving as he was applying those pesticides into the swamp areas where there are mosquitoes. If I were a mosquito, I would stay down there, I tell you. Right. <laughs> and, and I looked at him you know, after, after I knew what was going on, and I heard that it makes such a noise, it's unbelievable. And I looked at him. What does he wear? Guess what respiratory protection he has? Probably, probably, probably a handkerchief. <laughs> and uh, that's not a good idea. I don't know what he is spraying. I assume it is probably probably malathion or parathion, uh, both chemicals, by the way, developed in Germany by the Bayer Chemical Corporation, right. yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse. And I will write them a letter, and I tell them, and I said, look, if, yeah, that is not, uh, here, here is one. They don't have any regulation. Is self-regulation good? Yes, I think so. Why should we injure a poor guy, a young kid, probably a teenager, early 20 or so, uh, for a couple of dollars, which means nothing to this particular hotel, uh, they can protect that guy. They said, hey, next time you do this, you take this respirator, has up front a HEPA filter, in the back a charcoal filter, and uh, now you are protected. And when you are doing it, you're going to wear this over your nose and your mouth, not around your neck. Yeah. It's, uh, is that very comfortable? No. If I had to do the job, I certainly would use it. No doubt about it in my mind. So you can, with that illustration, you can see why without federal regulation in Mexico, for instance, people are yeah. being exposed to things that maybe they shouldn't be. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong, a clear yes or no. These are things I'll, that you have I'll, to I'll, measure. I'll, well, I, I think one of the things that, you know, we have in the United States, and you know, I can go on the Internet. If I'm not mistaken, in the United States, we have at least 500 fatalities of, a year based on West Nile virus in the United States. DDT is the best solution. It could save 500 lives a year based on West Nile virus alone. And they'll never bring it back. And you know, if you look at the data by which it was banned, and you know, there's a website uh, you know, that has it. There, there were 100 things, you know, manipulation of the studies and so on and so forth to make it, to make it bad. Uh, you know, if you go back and look at the Environmental Protection Agency and uh, who was the first director? Williams Ruckelshaus. And they had no money. They had no budget. The way they could get power was banning a substance, and he decided to go after big chemical. And he didn't care, uh, you know, whether the data was right. He didn't listen to his staff who said that, you know, that it was uh, a reasonably safe substance. They uh, went ahead and they banned it. Yeah, but now you're, you're putting yourself into his mind. Did he really not care? Did he, or did he weigh what available evidence was there? And make a decision. Absolutely not. And I think history and the data uh, shows that. And I, I think, I think even if you go to the EPA's website, okay, I think that they admit to the fact that Williams Ruckelshaus was uh, a little bit uh, overzealous in terms of 
uh, what he did and, and, and why he did it. But, you know, the funny thing is, you know, here in Pittsburgh, we have a bridge named after Rachel Carson and, you know, what a wonderful person she was and so on and so forth. And if you think of how many lives she is responsible, uh, you know, for ending because of banning a material which was safe and which actually saved lives. And, and, and Joe, the, the person that, in, that developed DDT won the Nobel Prize, not for chemistry, for medicine, okay? And I'm not, I'm not that familiar with the DDT science. I'm sure there are many out there who are, and I'm sure they have their very good reasons for doing things the way they do. Um, but let's go back to this question, Dieter. I think this is exactly what, this is exactly kind of where uh, I think there's a difference of opinion here. There, it maybe is difficult to tell what damage DDT or other uh, chemicals are causing to the environment. In particular, I think that was the concern with DDT and then, of course, the related problems for people. But what about this 20 fibers per cc thing, Dieter? Was that, is that too high? Is that too low? Uh, well, I was asked that question with my right hand raised under oath, and I was asked whether I th it is my belief that today's standard for uh, EPA outdoors point, I think it's point one, isn't that correct? Yes. Point one fibers per cc, I believe, is the is that safe? PEL. And OSHA today. has the same one, yeah. Permissible exposure limit, I believe, well, is point oh one. Point uh, one is, is that safe? And I said, yeah, it is safe. If it were not safe, and we know, get, let's go two steps back. We know that in our environment, in our environment, over the last yeah, <laughs> 50 years, everyone in the United States, I'm almost ready to say almost everyone in the whole world, was somehow exposed to asbestos fibers. They are omnipresent there. Yeah, wherever you measure them, in China, in Germany, in Africa, in South America, North America, Canada, it doesn't matter. You found asbestos fibers. Now, uh, it did not wipe out uh, the human population that we all died from lung cancer. Uh, we are exposed to asbestos fibers today. There is no question about it. It is much lower today than it was at the turn of the century, and certainly inside a ship hall when they use asbestos uh, very freely for insulation materials and what have you. Um, so, uh, it's, it, it, we learned through the years that, uh, yeah, after we did more research, uh, that it may, be, may have to be lowered. I have a TLV list, the threshold limit value list, uh, from 1942, where several chemicals like benzene had a TLV of a thousand, <laughs> and um, vinyl chloride had a, a TLV of 1,000 ppm parts per million. It's today, I think, one. Uh, why did it get lowered? Well, we saw that uh, exposures to that stuff was not good for you, and therefore we lowered it. And uh, there were a couple of very crazy cancers that were certainly associated with the exposure uh, to vinyl chloride, so we had to, uh, to, to lower it. That's the same thing with benzene. Now, I remember when I was a young guy, uh, my father brought, uh, in what are, what are they called, the jerry cans, right? right. Uh, the ones that are on Jeeps in the back? Yeah. I yeah, think it's, it's five-gallon can, right? right. Yes, he brought benzene home, and my mother and I used that to clean uh, grease spots out of our clothing. Dumped <laughs> yeah. it in there. Uh, did I have, did my mother or I have protective equipment? Are you kidding? Well, we kind of did it outside. We, 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 my mother decided that that was better than doing it in the basement. And uh, we hung it up, and uh, we certainly put benzene into the air as it was hanging on the, on the clothesline outside. Um, did I get leukemia from it? Nope. Did my mother get leukemia from it? Nope. Uh, now, I know those are two data points, and I'm well aware of that. 
you know, if I were to expose a million people to the same amount that I was uh, uh, um, exposed to, for some strange reason, in that population, we most likely will see people who get leukemia. Yeah, cancer of the blood, if you want it. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things which, you know, we went from, from 12 fibers to uh, 6 fibers to 5 fibers in asbestos now again to 2 fibers. Then it was 1 fiber, then it went po uh, to 0.1. And um, I, I think a lot of people uh, who were involved with that, and I said, hey, if we make an error, let's make an error on the safe side rather than on the high side which is understandable. I see that. It is understandable. So I don't know. Uh, um, it, this is, yeah, we, we got le uh, rid of lead uh, compounds in gasoline, the anti-knock uh, uh, agents, and we replaced it with a new one, uh, with the anti-knock, the original anti-knock uh, 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 lead-based uh, anti-knock materials. We had reams and reams of studies. The new one was, yeah, this is good and uh, it's better than the old one. Let's use that one. But we didn't know that much about it. We just replaced freon in all our refrigeration system with the new material. I know a lot about freon, but I don't know a lot about the other stuff. I don't even know the name of it. <laughs> yeah, the freons, are, the freons are the fluorocarbons. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe in 20 years from now we said, gee, woof, wait a second. That stuff isn't all as good as we thought 20 years ago. So what standard of care do we apply to every situation into which we run uh, uh, today? And that's the tough question, right? I mean, that, is, uh, that is the toughest question in the world. And, yeah. And, you know, it's not something that I don't, I don't think people are uh, intentional. You know, I guess it goes back to one of the guest questions here, comments that, you know, uh, does government serve business or is it the opposite way around? Does, does business serve government? And, uh, you know, I guess I would answer, but I think government serves people. I don't, I don't consider business to be one of the uh you know obviously they they have they have a uh government has a a role in making sure that there's a good environment for business to be successful but ultimately i think the government serves people and i think that's why you see a lot of these regulations coming into effect the people who are pushing for some of these regulations are oftentimes those who have been hurt by or at least feel they have been hurt by people not paying close enough attention to certain issues, whether it's asbestos or lead-based paint. Lead-based paint's a, you know, a huge one. I mean, there were a lot of children over the years who were exposed to much higher levels of lead than they ever should have been exposed to, not just from paint, but also from gasoline, as, as Dieter mentioned here. And, um, you know, something had to be done about that. And, in fact, now the question becomes, you know, where do you draw the line? Uh, did yeah. should, the, uh, should you ban every material that starts with an L? You know, that's... Yeah. Right, right. Where do, you, where do you draw the line, Dieter? That's the hard part. I mean, we had, um, you know, I, I'm on a chat room that discusses lead issues all the time, and there, you know, a lot of the people there are vehement that, you know, this is a great rule, the lead renovation, repair, and painting rule. And I, I tend to agree that it's it's a good, well-intended rule. Now, what, whether or not it will work in the real world is still, you know, to be de to be determined. But um, it was a well-intended rule, and I think some children, when this is done properly, may be better protected from these exposures that weren't necessary. Now, on the other hand. Uh, we had Dr. Let's see, Paulson on. No, 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 that was Dr. Jerome Paulson. He was the pediatrician. We just had another show not long ago, Cliff, where um, one um, of the M MDs came on. Women and, name. Um, uh, and he, he was the one that said that, you know, do we really know whether it was uh, the reduction in uh, lead and gasoline or the lead paint rules that's caused the lowering of blood lead levels and 
do we really know that those of us that we know were exposed to lead, you and I and Cliff, we were all exposed to lead. Are we, could we have been a little smarter if we hadn't been? Tough answers. These are tough questions to answer. Yeah. Well, yeah. Joe, yeah, I can make a point you know, on both sides. On, on just about any issue, let's take one uh, which may serve as a, as a, as a template. Uh, am, am I for or against illegal immigration from Mexicans, let's say Mexicans or South Americans to the United States? On one hand, you say that no illegal is not really right. Maybe they bring diseases with them. Um, uh, by and large, the guys who are coming across the border, why do they come to the United States? Not necessarily to deal dope or something like this. They want to work their butt off, work 12 hours a day. That's when you and I buy lettuce uh, at 99 cents a head, which comes from, uh, from uh, California. It has something to do with that. Now, would I like to, uh, when I'm driving over there, would I like to be in an accident when the guy who doesn't have a license, who doesn't have insurance, who is driving a $100 car, runs into my car, which costs $50,000? <laughs> would I like that? Absolutely not. So, you know, you can make a point of uh, it in, 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 in every direction. Is that regulation good? Uh, yeah, it's good. Is it the best? No, it isn't. Uh, can we do without it? Uh, probably not. So I think there comes the point, and this is, you, know, you can't legislate common sense. That is the problem. That you say, okay, this is a, don't look at it as a law. If you don't abide by it, you are a felon. You, know, you go to prison. Let's look at it as a guideline, and let's apply common sense. And of course, yeah, that is not going to work either in our world with lawyers around and saying, hey, uh, I don't want the little old lady from around the corner to interpret toxicological data on the safety of the water she is drinking. <laughs> I'm 100% for that. In fact, I got that, and there are several errors. I, if I were a little bit younger, and <laughs> I would uh, have written to the, the my water company. They sent me a... Uh, a, uh, a six-page pamphlet about the quality of my water. There are a couple of errors in there. They talk about a couple of parts per million of lead in water. Now, Joe knows that, and <laughs> he listened to me many times. You can't have lead in water in PPMs. You can have it in micrograms or milligrams per liter, but you have, if you express something in parts per million, it is solid in solid, it is vapor in vapor, and it is liquid in liquid. You can't mix that up. That's impossible. So the water company tells me that they're whatever, a couple of parts per billion of lead uh, in my water. I said, yeah, there is a mistake over here. Now, I have a hard time reading through that thing, and I've been associated with toxicology for the last 30 years or something, longer than that. And, yeah, if I don't understand it, how good information is that? And it's, it's required by law that they send it, it out. You have to send it to the little old lady who, uh, you know, who is 80 years old, who doesn't know what a PPM is, and nothing wrong with that little old lady. My mother was a little old lady. My grandmother was a little old lady. And she had no idea what a part per million was. And they were two wonderful, wonderful women in my life. <laughs> well, Dita, we are running low here. And, and it's been fun, actually. I've, I've enjoyed this discussion. Uh, by the way, it, it was Dr. Howard Sandler who was on the show who uh, was discussing the lead issue. He's probably coming in now, right? An hour later. Yeah, well, actually, Denver's two hours behind us. Uh, I think <laughs> what we're going to do is uh, we're going to hopefully uh, Doug will get our, our messages, and uh, we'll touch base here this afternoon. And we're going to try and bring him in on the uh, 7th of January if he's available when we return. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, What's the difference, really? No, nah, it's been fun. We touched on a couple. I mean, Cliff brought out a couple of wonderful points. Points, they're not at the end of the world, but things you got to think about before you do it. And I said, hey, what will be the effect of this and this and this and that? Yeah. 
Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up here, folks. We appreciate everybody joining us. First, I want to make sure that everyone knows we're going to take a couple of weeks off here. We'll be back. Obviously, we're not going to be here on uh, Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. And then uh, what we'll do is we'll be back on January 7th. I want to thank everybody that joined us uh, this week. And, of course, every week I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, of course, um, Dr. Dietrich Wow, of course, for joining us and keeping us enlightened again for what was an entertaining hour, and Cliff? Oh, yeah, no, Joe, and I guess anyone in the, the listening audience, I think uh, what I'd like you to do is Google a guy by the name of Thomas Midgley Jr., and it's spelled M-I-D-G-L-E-Y, Jr. Interesting guy. Interesting guy, and all he right. He was a chemist and an inventor and, uh, you know, uh, there's a couple things he's responsible for. So, All right. Well, I would also uh, want to make sure we thank our, our listeners. And, of course, we'll uh, always be back here on January 7th. we got, by the way, some great shows lined up already for next year. Uh, obviously, the 7th, we're hoping to get uh, Doug Farquhar on and talk a little bit about legislation. And I'm sure he'll uh, have something to add to this show. Okay. And then uh, on the 14th, we're going to talk a little bit about green building products, which um, we're going to have the uh, president of Air Quality Systems, or AQS, on. And then we've got uh, a great show on a uh, paper that came out from, uh, I think it was LBL, Lawrence, Lawrence Berkeley Labs, uh, with Dr. Mandel on the 21st. Looking forward to that one as well. So... We uh, are lining up some great shows for next year, and what I'm going to do is sign off right now by saying uh, thanks to our sponsors and also thanks to you, our listeners, and we'll see you here on January 7th for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.